So if you will, turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're doing this summer opportunity to go through this section of 1 Peter about submission. Submission. We are going to go through this morning and next time submission of wives to their husbands and then the Christian husband's understanding of his wife, which uh, even though it's only one verse in 1 Peter 3, 7, it'll take us three parts to get through it. Isn't that right, ladies? Yes, I thought you might say that. Well, we're going to go through your section in two messages, ladies, so that the men can love you in between messages and then afterwards, all right? And we want to do that because in this little series that we're doing out of 1 Peter, we, we do want to talk about what submission is like. What, what does God expect of us in this area of submission? And if you have been with us, you have been seeing that thus far we've been talking about two kinds of submission. The first kind of submission is to government. Now, I can almost hear groans as I say such a thing. Because it is a great challenge, even in our day, to submit uh, to the government that is over us. Many, many challenges, many implications, many questions, uh, a lot of qualifiers, in fact, about uh, when you must submit, uh, what happens when uh, you're challenged by the government to do something that God prohibits, for instance, and therefore you must not submit. And we've talked through those things quite at length. And then we move not only from submission to government, but submission in the, in the context of your earthly master. And you know, we've spent quite a bit of time, again, nuancing and qualifying that because not all bosses are Christians over us. Not uh, all the time do we have just uh, a wonderful opportunity at work, for instance, to, to do everything because we have a wonderful Christian boss. No, there are times, probably in the vast majority of cases, where we're working our jobs and we're working underneath those who are not Christians at all. And so we have to understand those things and we have to go through God's Word and see what God's Word says. And we talked about that quite at length all the way to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25. And now... In part one of our message on wives and husbands, particularly wives submitting to their husbands, we find ourselves in 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Listen to the Word of God as we read it together. You follow along as I read 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart." with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, 
as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, we are going to take two parts to this, this Lord's Day and next. And we're following, essentially, the very same kind of outline points than we've given in submission to government and to earthly masters. And the first outline point is very, very clear for us all to follow. And I'm going to use the same letter C for us to follow very, very closely and very carefully. And the first outline point is this, the command, the command, just like the first two submissions that we've been seeing to government and earthly masters. Very, very clearly, if you can see verse 13 of chapter 2, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. That phrase, be subject or submit, that's a continuous verbal idea that says, as you walk the walk of faith, be continually and ever-expanding in your knowledge and obedience to submit yourself to your government. That's the verbal idea. And then, if you look at verse 18 of 1 Peter 2, it says, again, servants, we would say employees, sort of applying it, giving application to our own context here in the 21st century, servants, employees, be subject to your masters with all respect. So you see, be subject in verse 13, and now be subject to your masters in verse 18. And now chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. That's the command. The command in verse 13 is the same as verse 18 and is the same as chapter 3, verse 1. So you see Peter's pattern to be subject to be subject, to be subject, to submit, to submit, to submit. This is the third command of Peter in these house rules, household code, which is what they're often called, and the first two being submissive, and now this in the same way. That's what one of the translations other than the ESV says, in the same way, or likewise, Christians are to submit to government, employees are to submit to their bosses, and now likewise, in the same way, Christian wives are to submit to their own husbands. This is a command from God's Word, and like these previous commands, it is an imperative. It is imperatively important that wives live out in their families for the sake of the structure of the home and for the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ that they be submissive to their own husbands. The duty of a Christian wife is to line up herself. This is what being subject means, to line herself up underneath her husband as the most important and closest person of authority in her life. In other words... There is an authority structure in the home, and that structure is seen with the man as the head of the home, with the wife placing herself under the authority of that husband. Now, of course, to fill out that structure, the children are commanded, of course, in other places in the New Testament, and we've read some of those, to place themselves under the authority of their parents, including mom and dad. 
This is God's design. This is God's design for the authority structure of the home. Now, having said that, and we've read the Word of God, and this is what it says at face value, just on the plain sense of the text itself, and as we read it together, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands in our society. Let's say it like they would say it in the South, them are fighting words. (laughs) They're fighting words. Because we have in our culture the sense that anybody's submission to anyone is automatically, number one, a negative thing, and number two, I'll just flatly deny that there are some submission relationships that ought to be carried out, and perhaps there are a multitude of women who say, and this is top of my list, top of my list, not going to submit. I don't believe in that. I don't think that's right. I think this kind of subservient behavior is completely wrong-headed. I think this is a kind of thing that men have done over against women for millennia. I think it's injurious to my character. I think it's something that belittles me. I think it's something that If, in fact, the Word of God says that, I don't agree with the Word of God, I don't agree that this is to be the hierarchical structure of the home, and if you tell me to do this, I'm out of here. Now, we know that that's what the world says. We know that a sermon like this and a passage like this is to be completely disregarded by those who don't love and know Christ. We know that. So what do we do? How do do we respond to this? I mean, you have essentially three relationships that the Word of God talks about, particularly the New Testament, in which people bristle almost immediately. And that is the issue of homosexuality, of women submitting to their husbands or women submitting in general to men, and slavery. Now, we've talked about the slavery matter, and we talked about it pretty extensively. And we went through this very, very carefully. And we've even talked about homosexuality here and there, even though it's not specifically addressed in these texts. But we haven't yet actually talked about this kind of submission of a wife to her husband. We've talked about submitting to the government. Well, what happens when the government tells you to do something that Jesus compels you to do, uh, commands you to do? and then you must disobey the government. That's clear. Gave you passages on that. And then we also, of course, talked about a a kind of human submission to an earthly master, a boss, an employer. And and what about those times when that employer asks you or demands of you that you cannot do this or that, and that's clearly what you're commanded in the Word of God to do? Well, then you have to, to civilly, or in that context, in terms of your employment, disobey, disregard, possibly even at the loss of a job. Well, what do you do if it's not a submission to the government, it's not a submission in a workplace, but it's actually in your home? You can't so easily just say, well, I'm out of here. I'm leaving the home. Ali, ali, oxen free, my hand's on the tree, you can't touch me anymore. What do we do? How do we respond? And maybe someone's going to come along and, of course, 
You can find those in droves these days who say, well, yes, that appears to be what the Word of God says, but I don't agree with the Word of God. Or they might say something like this, well, yes, it does say that, and yes, there are some evangelicals who believe that that's what it means. It does say that, but what does it mean by what it says? And I'm here to tell you that it doesn't mean that. And they go back into history, perhaps, maybe the history of the first century, and what were men like in general, and what were women like in general, and what was the culture, and how did they react in that culture to Peter's words or Paul's words. And then they might say, oh, but we've arrived. We've become so much more intellectually sophisticated these days. In fact, so good are we in our 21st century culture that we sometimes read passages like this and uh, we give a little bit of a smirk because we say, oh, how naive they were. How, how intellectually unsophisticated was Peter? You see, we've arrived. We've come to a place now where we can look at and pick and choose certain Bible verses in which we say, well, that certainly couldn't be applied to today. Because you see, women aren't supposed to submit to their husbands, let alone any man. In fact, I'd like to argue, says someone, that it's the men's turn to now submit to all ladies. And perhaps that not only happens in the home, but it should happen in the workplace. And and perhaps it ought to happen even in the church. And perhaps we ought to have women preaching just as much, if now not more, than men. In fact, maybe perhaps you men ought to just sort of shuffle yourselves along. We'll take over from here. Thank you. Now, You say, that sounds rough on your part. That sounds insensitive on your part. No. If you read like I read, or if you are a part of this culture like I'm a part of this culture, it's coming, and it's coming really fast. And when it comes, we'll have the opportunity sweetly, humbly, carefully, and with love in our hearts as we say, that isn't what the Bible teaches And we love you, and we care for you, and because precisely we do care for you, we want to teach you what the Word of God says so that you'll have the most optimum Christian life and service that you could possibly have. And so, Peter, just like ourselves, just like myself, just like yourself, we're saying we simply want to be submissive to the Word of God in general. You see, because that's our greatest submission, isn't it? I mean, we're talking about submission to government, submission to an earthly master, submission to a husband, as it sees us doing here, but our greatest and most optimum submission that there can be on the planet, in the universe, is our ultimate submission to the Word of the living God. And this is where we find ourselves. We find ourselves placing our lives underneath the submission of the Word of God. I can't say, even if I might be tempted to say, and I wouldn't, but even if I were, well, yes, this is what God's Word says, but neither do I like it or neither do I purpose to follow it. 
which is to say that I'm actually above the Word of God. I'm placing myself above its authority, and my submission will stop where I myself arbitrarily decide to draw the line. And since I've drawn the line at homosexuality, or I've drawn the line of, of this idea of women and their submission uh, to men in general, or perhaps their husband in particular, or I draw the line with this whole matter of slaves and masters, and I'm telling you, I've decided to draw the line in any or all of such categories, and I'm simply telling you that this is what I'm going to do and I shall do no other. Well, if that's the case, let me appeal. Let me appeal, not just to you, of course, but to our culture. The best way to live is to do what God says. The most optimum way to live, not just for your own happiness, but also for your own holiness. This is what God's Word says, and we want to bow before it. Listen to 1 Corinthians 11.3. Paul says, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. You see, when Jesus was on his earthly journey, his ministry on this earth, he perfectly and completely submitted himself to his heavenly Father. And I suspect that if Jesus, the perfect God-man, could submit himself willingly and lovingly and submissively and wonderfully underneath the dictates of his heavenly Father, then perhaps you and I could emulate the same attitude. Perhaps we could say to ourselves, if this is the mindset, the attitude of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the perfect God-man, then perhaps I could also submit in the ways that the Word of God tells me to. Now think of it this way. In this command to submit, and I've brought this up a couple of times before in these messages on submission, and it is like the following. This is a pagan culture. This was a a culture in the first century where both Jews and Gentiles were residing in this area. If you go back to 1 Peter 1, verse 1, you're going to find that there was a major dispersion of Jews to Gentile lands. Some of it, in fact, a lot of it was related to persecution. They had to go to find where they might be able to live as a family together without the harassment and the persecution and the suffering that their brothers and sisters were were undergoing throughout this area of, of our world and in which so many of these professing Christians never made it out of their lands. They were killed. They were murdered. They were imprisoned. All for the sake of their faith. Can you imagine the experience of where you are right now, living in your blessed home and being a part of this church and having your job? And in any one of those places, you're going to have someone burst the door down and say, enough of you if you continue to proclaim Christ. 
we'll not have it. We're, We're going to stamp out Christianity as we know it. So if you decide that your profession of faith in Jesus Christ is your number one priority and it affects everything else that you do, we're telling you, you are going to live in this country under our rules and under our dictates or you will be either removed from this country altogether, never to return, perhaps even the splitting up of your family and or... If you profess Jesus Christ any longer, you shall die by the sword. Now, praise God, we don't have that here. But that's what some of these folks were going through, first century. And need I remind you who the emperor was at this time? Nero. A pretty lousy fella, if you ask me. And Nero was one of those who was doing his best underneath that empire, to stamp out Christianity as it was flourishing. And guess what? The the very death of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You look at the book of Acts and you find each section so compelling about preaching the gospel and about miracles and about Christianity flourishing from Pentecost onward. And if you read that in the book of Acts and you don't read interspersed within almost every single chapter of that 28-chapter book, you're going to miss one element if you haven't already found out, and that is that the major theme of the book of Acts, along with those things I've just mentioned, is the reality of suffering and persecution. It's huge. It's all over the book of Acts. You can't can't read the book of Acts without seeing this major component of persecution in the midst of this Jew-Gentile church as it begins to be formed. Jews first, and then fanning out Judea, Samaria, and uttermost parts. And what you find is that Jews and Gentiles are beginning under the very banner of God's love and grace to worship in the church together. And as they do, there are those who are not happy about that at all. And this Roman oppression and the imperial guard and all of those underneath that government were doing their best to stamp out Christianity. So here's the scenario. Whether they don't have you by the submission to that government, they'll try some other way. If they don't have you in an employment relationship, they'll perhaps try another way. And where might they try? Right in your very home. Or possibly, let's change it up a bit. Let's say that you're talking about not everybody in a particular home who's come to faith in Christ through the spread of this gospel, Perhaps only one. Perhaps only one. And perhaps it's the wife. Her husband's not a believer. The children may be young, maybe too young to be able to grasp the gospel. Or maybe they are older and they have not yet left the home. You remember in those days, often the family unit just continued to grow and expand even with sons-in-laws and daughters-in-laws and others And so maybe you've got this sort of a 
bit of a compound, we might call it, and you've got all kinds of related people in the compound, and perhaps only one of them is a believer. They've come out of this paganism. They've come, come out of this, this Gentile world where they might be serving all kinds of polytheistic uh, religions and multiple gods, and the gospel has captured one person in the home. And perhaps with this command of submit, we move secondly to the context. Look back at 1 Peter chapter 3. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. And then the next phrase is the context. So that even if, notice that, even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. Now, I want you to center in on that phrase, so that if any of them are disobedient to the word. What's the context? Context is Peter's talking to a wife, and he's talking to a Christian wife. And he's saying to this Christian wife, here's a scenario that you need to be ready for. You've come to Christ. You might have come out of this paganistic culture in which you were worshiping a multiplicity of gods, and the gospel has rested upon your heart, and you believed. You believed in one God as existent in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you've become saved. You've been delivered from your sins. You're glorying in God's grace. God's grace has visited you, but only you. At this juncture, apparently nobody else in the family. Perhaps you're not even a a true resident of that area because you were born somewhere else. So you're not only a kind of a sojourner as far as your life is concerned, but now as a testimony for Jesus Christ, you're living in a home that's in a faraway place. Nero is the emperor. The government is what it is. The idea of those who are employing you may not be the kindest to you. And now you're a wife and you're in a home, and you believed in Christ, but nobody else around you is a believer. Now, you have a church. You've got a probable, small, little enclave of believing persons, maybe a few, maybe 10, perhaps 25. That would be mammoth. That'd be a megachurch. And let's say you're you're able at certain times to be able to go, preferably, of course, on the Lord's Day, even as a wife, and you're able to go and you are sweetly worshiping with the saints. And you're in somebody else's home and you're singing God's praises and you're, you're praising Him for what He's done in your life. He's brought you to Himself. He's forgiven you all your sins. The cross is ever before your worshiping eyes. And there's someone, probably without a coat and tie, who's standing there, perhaps with only a little bitty piece of paper that has Peter's words on it. 
And perhaps he's reading to you as a Christian wife these words. Wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some, some husbands, perhaps your own husband, does not obey the word. What does that mean? He's not a Christian. That's what it means. He's not a Christian. He's disobedient to the word. That means that his life, the character of his life, the pattern of his life, the walk of his life is not toward Jesus Christ. It's not worshiping Jesus Christ. It's not that husband uh, taking you by the arm and walking a couple of miles to that small little house where there's a gathering of Christians to praise God, to to rejoice that God has also saved your mate, your spouse. And you're walking together. And perhaps even where you're walking, you have to be careful because the authorities may find out where you are. So this is a woman who's walking alone. And she walks to a place where Jesus Christ is exalted, but she's not with her husband because he's disobedient to the word. Do you see that phrase there, even if? You know what I take from that? That means it's probably not common. Even if he's disobedient to the word, perhaps, praise God, the majority of these husbands who are in this dispersed area worshiping Jesus Christ are worshiping with their godly wives. Should I take a pause and say, men, should we be thanking God for godly wives? Do you know that taking your wife by the arm, and in our case, driving in our fabulous cars, and going to this very, very beautiful building for which, even though we might be a little hot today because they're putting on a roof Some of our air conditioning units have to be shut down so they can continue their work. Even with all of that progress happening, it's pretty nice in here. It's pretty comfortable. And you know the greatest thing about being in here right now is that most of us, if we're married, will have someone sitting right next to us that we cherish. You may not be married. You're spouse may have died, you may be too young to have yet married, but the vast majority of us, Christian husband, Christian wife, and you're worshiping the Lord together, and it is so sweet, so sweet. And yet some of you, you're looking at 1 Peter 3 and you're saying, "This this is actually me. I've been worshiping and serving the Lord for many, many years. My husband's not a Christian. And up to this point, he's not given any indication that he's desiring to become a Christian. Think about not just your culture in the 21st century, but think about a woman here. He's disobedient to the Word. That's the, that's the context of what we find. Now, I'm sure Peter could have arranged things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to include all Christian wives and all matters of submission to their husbands. But he picks out 
for that culture and that time through the Holy Spirit's inspiration, a huge example. Because in that pagan culture, it may have been that many of these wives did not have a Christian husband. Many of them. I don't know what the percentages might be, but certainly Peter's right on target here for those who have non-Christian husbands, and even if some of them do not obey the word. Listen to some implication questions like this. Especially, my friends, and especially you ladies, if you are, by God's grace, befriending someone else, and you're meeting with her, and you're talking with her and counseling with her, and you're trying to help her because she has an unsaved husband, and you want to give her the best counsel. Here's some implications. How am I to practice my Christianity in the midst of my unsaved husband? That's a great question. How am I to practice my religion? And what about my impact and input in the lives of my children when I'm having to do it alone? Oh, my husband's here, but he doesn't join in to our family devotions. And he just seems to suddenly be gone when I'm talking about the Lord with my kids. He's out in the garage working with his tools. And I'm all alone in the discipleship of my children, or so it seems. Here's another one. What happens if my husband says, oh, by the way, I don't want you going to that church anymore. I don't like it. I don't like your religiosity. So I'm telling you. In fact, I think I heard you say that one of your preachers was telling you that it says, wives, be submissive to your husbands. I like that. I like that verse. Yeah. So that's what you're going to do. You're going to be totally submissive to me, and you may not go to that place of worship anymore. So what do you say? Boy, not an easy question, is it? There you're on the horns of a dilemma. I'm supposed to be obedient to the Word. My husband, this unsafe spouse, is disobedient to the Word, and now he's telling me, you can't do what the Word commands you to do. So what do you do? Well, perhaps you're going to have to compromise a little bit. And believe you me, after 35 years of pastoral ministry, I've had a lot of discussions in the counseling room with wives who come. They're very tear-filled, and they, they want and love the Lord, and they want to be of great service, and they want to serve in the church in a myriad of ways. And perhaps a partial answer to that is I want to encourage you that if he's telling you that you're serving too much at the church or you're going too many times to church, maybe you can compromise. Perhaps the only thing you can do is worship one day a week for one hour when we all gather together, and at present, that's all you can do. And if he allows you to do something like that, then praise God, you're still worshiping with the saints. Praise God, you're able to do this 
Now, what happens if he says, you can't do anything including that? Well, the Word of God tells us very clearly that we all, as worshiping saints, are to worship corporately with each other in the context of a local church, right? I say, at least in my understanding, not only of this text, but the implications thereof, that you might have to say, I love you and I love you with all my heart. You're my husband and I wouldn't want anybody else, but I will say to you, God has commanded me to worship with the saints in the house of God and I shall do so. What kind of misfires, though, at times? Well, perhaps she says, and I'm going on Tuesday night because there's a ladies' group, and I'm going on Wednesday morning because there's a ladies' prayer time, and oh, by the way, there's a, there's a flocks group on Friday night, and I must go there. Well, perhaps you may need to pare down some of those things, and possibly even if you've pared those things down and you haven't been the kind of submissive wife at home that you otherwise should be. Perhaps that's, perhaps that's part of the rub. Because maybe you're saying to yourself, well, I sure wish he'd become a Christian. I'd sure wish that preacher would get down here, talk to him face to face. I sure wish those tracks I've been putting under his pillow would, would do the trick. Perhaps some of the problem, perhaps some of the stumbling block on the human side of it, God's sovereign, but on the human side of it, perhaps the best thing you could do is what 1 Peter 3 says right here. If even some of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the what? Conduct. The conduct of of their wives. Boy, that's an important word. So a very important word. And I know these are not easy answers. But what it seems to be indicating to us is that there is someone who's disobedient to the word, namely the husband, that the wife has a phenomenal opportunity to win him without a word but actually have a word. And the word that you have is the conduct of your lives. You see, there are going to be on some occasions and particular situations in which you won't be able to live just the gospel with your lives and your lips, but perhaps only with your lives. Now, don't you cop out here, whoever you may be. Well, see, that's, that's what I do at my job. That's what I do at home. I never talk about the Lord. I just try to live up to it. Well, in this case, I can understand where she's coming from. The rest of us, we don't have such luxury. We're called upon to both, with life and lips, proclaim the gospel. Nobody proclaims the gospel only with their lives only. Nobody does that. Somebody could say, well, you know, I've, I've looked at your life and I want to follow what you have. And someone says, I'm Mormon. I'm exemplary. I'm a Jehovah's Witness. We've got great families here. And those two are antithetical to the gospel. They're not the true gospel. 
So you've got to use more than just your life. You've got to communicate the gospel also through your lips. But in this case, it appears as though Peter is telling us that the conduct of her life is the supreme opportunity for her to live out the faith of the gospel. And perhaps she can do that even without a word by her conduct. Listen to this very good word from Peter Davids. While submitting to him, her whole motivation comes from a different source, her deep obedience to God. Her husband would surely realize this when he notes that his wife is subject to him whether he is nice or not, whenever his requests fall within the range of what is allowed by her religion, but independent of him whenever his request or command demands something God would prohibit. This is not simple social conformity, but a radically Christian stance that makes Christ truly Lord. We differentiate this position from that of some popular evangelical teachers of hierarchical family relationships who assert that a wife should submit to every, note it, every demand of her husband, godly or not, for he, not she, is responsible for her behavior if it is done in obedience to him. This is precisely what Peter and Paul is not saying. Peter treats women as fully responsible moral agents before God and places submission to God above submission to their husbands. So here's what you do. As a Christian wife, you do everything you can to be obedient to your God first and foremost because He's your Lord. And when you have the opportunity to give in the conduct of your life supreme allegiance to the lordship of Jesus Christ, even with an unsaved man as a husband. Boy, if God's grace is going to become evident in that man's life, it will undoubtedly be because he is so convicted by yours. Your life is a constant conviction of what it means to know and love God. I mean, what an opportunity. You you could say that about your government. You could say that about your earthly master, your employee relationships, your employer relationships, and you can most certainly talk about that in the home. I have had, I don't know how many opportunities, but a couple of them just flood my mind immediately as I'm talking. And I can remember one particularly back many, many years ago, and I had... A precious lady come in and she talked with us and she had an unsaved husband and she said, how long? How long am I to live with this conduct? I want to. I purpose to. But it doesn't seem that God is moving his heart and I'm tired. And in love and with much counsel, that which I couldn't rehearse here, I said, until you go to heaven. Why? Because whether you have an unsaved husband or not, this conduct is to be lived out by everyone for as long as you have breath, whether you have an unsaved husband or not. The conduct 
doesn't change. The conduct of Christ-like living is clear and it's permanent. It, it never changes. In fact, isn't perhaps one of God's reasons for you having an unsaved husband is that he's using your unsaved husband in your life to actually produce the kind of conduct that honors him? Perhaps God has you with an unsaved person in the very most intimate relationship of all, and he's not releasing him from his disobedience to the word because he's using it so immeasurably and so wonderfully in your life. And I'll never forget that very one of whom I speak has spoken to me many years later and said, I really, truly believe he's come to Christ. He's at church with me, worshiping with me, and I say, praise God. But even if that doesn't happen, perhaps you'll go all the way to glory and be the more sanctified person for what God chose to do in your life by not saving that man. That's a hard word. But it's a word that can be the very context of what Peter is saying right here. And you say, how so? How is this possible? Look at verse 2. Look at verse 2. And this is our last series of statements for the morning. Let's call this not just the command and the context as verse 1 gives us, but the character, the character of this woman. Look at verse 2. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, your pure and your respectful conduct. You want to get into specifics? What does that conduct look like? Well, Peter's not shy about telling us. Here's how you can potentially win him without a word. And by the way, I love the word win here. Win, that they may be one, W-O-N, without a word, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Peter likes that word. Paul likes that word. He uses it. You don't have to turn there, but 1 Corinthians, this is, this is so marvelous. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 says it this way. Paul says, to this person I do this, to that person I do that, in order that I might win some. Win them. What do you mean win them? This is not a contest. No, it's winning them to Christ. Seeing them one to the word. Instead of being disobedient to the word, they're one to the dictates of the word. The, the winning of an unsaved husband speaks of really a missionary term. You're a missionary. It's winning someone to Christ, brought to the recognition that their life is an affront to God and that you have an opportunity now with a person who you live the closest with to win them by the very conduct of your life so that instead of that husband seeing God as an affront to them, they're seeing God as their Savior. 
This is, this is what he means. Your chaste and respectful behavior. By the way, the word chaste here, hagnos, it refers to this, innocence of life, moral chastity. This is the character of a person. This is the character of a godly woman. You say, well, I sort of tuned you out because I've got a Christian husband and I'm good in that area. And because you were preaching this morning on the saved spouse for the unsaved spouse and we're both Christians and we're praising God for that, I sort of stopped listening about 32 minutes ago. (laughs) Perhaps this will help you as they observe Let's say that they is anyone else in your sphere of influence. Anyone else who you can directly impact. And oh, by the way, in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul talks about those kids that I referenced a moment ago, maybe kids that are too young to embrace the gospel, or maybe kids who are in the home who can, in fact, mentally speaking, embrace the gospel. And you know know what it says about an unequally yoked relationship? It says in 1 Corinthians, does Paul, that you should not, if you're a saved spouse and you live with an unsaved spouse, leave that relationship, divorce that person just because you've become a Christian because you have the very real potential for a sanctifying influence in the life of those people And in that context, he particularly talks about the sanctifying influence that the saved person has upon their children. Don't for one moment cease to reaffirm in your heart no matter how hard it is to parent those children or to work in children's ministry. Do not underestimate the power, the sanctifying power of your influence. God uses means when he saves people. And when you have the opportunity to be chaste and respectful, Peter says. And I looked at a few other passages that can also attest to this chaste and respectful behaving life. Listen to this. 1 Timothy 2, you don't have to turn there. 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10. Women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Or, how about Titus 2.5? Train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. I mean... There are a gaggle of passages that speak to us, whether you're a wife of an unsaved man, whether you have unbelieving children, whether you have parents who believers but children not yet in Christ, or you have children who are older and maybe out of the home and they're not yet Christians, whatever context all of us can say one thing and one thing very clearly. I too want to have chaste and respectful behavior. In all my spheres of influence, my home, my school, my work, my church, I want to have this respectful behavior. You say, what is respectful? That's the word phobos, 
fear. Reverential fear. Reverential honor. You say, honor that guy that I'm married to? Are you kidding? Have you seen the way he acts? Perhaps so. How do non-Christians act like non-Christians? Why would we expect anything else? Unbelievers do what unbelievers do. Now, some, some of them aren't the worst at their unbelief. Some of them are. But wherever they are and whatever they're doing, try this. If you have a moral purity in your life and your thinking and you have a reverence for God, chaste and respectful behavior, especially toward your Lord and your earthly master, your husband, to the degree that you're seeking God's approval in the seeking of the salvation of that man, trust God and see if God will bring it about through your godly life. Maybe one of the husband's hindrances, as I said, is that maybe he says to her, if that's what Christianity is like, I want no part of it. Maybe she has some idea of what it means to be a Christian, but she hasn't been well taught. She needs to be discipled. She needs to be nurtured. She, she needs to be understanding what it means to be a godly wife, whether she's with a Christian husband or not, and perhaps she needs help from you and me, and, and perhaps she's falling and stumbling in many ways. And if she is, our local church is here to help. We're here to come alongside. Let us help you. And we can say it in the most positive of ways. What a grand opportunity we have. What a, what a great trial you're under. You say, what are you talking about? This is hard. This is difficult. This is, this is incredibly difficult. If you were in my situation, ah, but wait, but wait. Did not the Lord Jesus the perfect Son of God, undergo the worst of treatments in the history of the world? And does not Peter say in 1 Peter 2 that we should follow in his steps? Perhaps there's a way that you could be used of God in seeing this man come to faith in Christ. Listen to Edmund Clowney as we close. Christian wives can have an important part in the church's witness. That witness may not be easy. Their husbands have resisted the claim of the gospel. They may ridicule the message and insult their wives. So strong may their hostility be that it is no longer possible for their wives to speak of the Lord to them. Even then, the Christian wife must not despair She still possesses a mighty weapon for winning her husband to the faith. It is the testimony of her life. Her husband has refused to heed the word. Very well. Let him be one without words. The silent eloquence of his wife's pure and respectful behavior can preach daily the transforming power of Jesus Christ. And after you pillow your head at night when you've done the noble deeds that you must do that are commanded of you, and even in your weariness you say, God, give me your strength and grace. And then, my dear lady, go to sleep. 
and trust God for the results. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, this is, I know, a very hard word for some, hard in the sense that a Christian woman is going through it right now, and perhaps she's been given some armament in which to fight the battle. Let her read, if not memorize, and meditate upon the words of 1 Peter 3, 1 to 6. And as we finish this text next Lord's Day, Lord willing, we pray that other brothers and sisters would come alongside such a woman to care for her and love her and pray for her and instruct her. And perhaps, Lord, for an application for all of us where we find ourselves in whatever station of life and whatever sphere of influence may our own lives have this chaste and respectful behavior so that we can win others through our life and our lips. May it be so. For the glory of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.